Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hello, and welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is John McAdams, and I'll be your co-host for the session. I'm very happy to be here today with Dr. Michael Christie. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Good to be here, John. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being part of our summit. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We've been uh, preparing for this, so I'm really excited. I'm going to read from your bio to familiarize our audience with you and your work, and then we'll jump right in the conversation. How's that sound? Perfect. Okay. Well, today with us is Reverend Dr. Michael Christie, based in Connecticut. He is a full-time chaplain supervisor with the Connecticut Department of Corrections. He is an engaged Mindfulness Institute certified mindfulness teacher and mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency trainer in training. Dr. Christie teaches mindfulness to the incarcerated and to correctional staff. He has been working with trauma-informed approaches to mindfulness interventions with addicted populations and other trauma-impacted groups. As well, Dr. Christie works with kids and at-risk youth coaching mindfulness in youth sports programs. Michael has a passion to teach mindfulness and meditation to Christians and has created a curriculum for faith-based meditation. Okay, again, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. Let me start. You've been working with incarcerated people for a long time. Originally as a volunteer, you told me for over 18 years. Now, for a number of years, uh, as a full-time employed Christian chaplain with the State Department of Corrections. So, first of all, I'm just going to ask you, share, if you would, a little bit about what, what drew you in? What drew you into working with these people in these populations and these particular environments? Uh, good question. So, I don't know if it's one particular thing that drew me in. I said, for me, I volunteered for a number of years. And I worked in corporate world for um, equally as long, and um, there was um, a downsizing that happened um, back in uh, 2011. And it was really, um, when I look back over, it was really a calling because I transitioned from um, that work, um, thinking I was going to pause from that work and return to it. Uh, got an invitation to do full-time chaplaincy and uh, fell in love with it and just has not left uh, since. Just enjoyed working. Um, um, I work mostly with men and just enjoyed really making a difference and contributing in a way. And interestingly enough, when I first went there, I, I have my doctorate. And I'm an educated person, so I, I had a little arrogance going in thinking I was going to teach them everything but it was um, it was cool for both of us um, they were learning from me and I was learning a lot from them as well about myself about the system about, uh, about urban communities and the trauma uh, therein um, even though I grew up in the urban community myself it wasn't until I got to prison that I really was able to unpack that in a deep and more meaningful way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so you worked as a volunteer for these many years, and then you came into this full-time work. And can you talk about your understanding? This is kind of a two-part question. So your understanding of what is it 
really like to live in a prison, to be in custody, being not in custody like this, having prison is your home address. What, what have you started to understand about that? If you correctly, you're talking about what is it like for inmates yeah. from their perspective? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so the sense that your freedom is, is gone and um, uh, disconnection from the family and the isolation just of the building and the way the buildings are structured, uh, the nature of, of uh, power over from, from the um, system, this desire that they're officers and their rules and you have to obey the rules. So you are essentially told when to have breakfast, told when to have lunch, told when to have dinner, um, just so the, the facility can run um, and with some kind of order. And so all of that takes away a lot of choice from, from inmates. And, um, and some, unfortunately, um, some who have high recidivism and have been in, in and out of the system for a host of reasons um, may become comfortable with that. Not that they're comfortable being there. They, they quickly um, assemble, uh, assimilate themselves there to, um, to survive. And so... Um, and then you have you have a, a place where is essentially a trauma hospital, full of men with all sorts of trauma background, uh, with anger issues, with substance abuse issues, and all of them are there already uh, in the in the environment that will stimulate uh, one's survival instincts and nervous system, and so potential for discomfort and arguments uh, are really high. So if you're not really grounded or have a grounded practice could easily uh, find yourself uh, in trouble. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I say trouble, uh, I work the facilities, particularly here in Connecticut, you don't have folks running around with shanks, stabbing folks, or doing any of that kind of stuff. You know, the, the, the best you have is a fight, fist fight, for the most part. Um, but still, even, even for you to engage in a, the tension of a, of a, a verbal argument and... Um, can, can cause stress, uh, not only for those participating, but for others that are uh, around in the housing unit. This really kind of leads us into, into, into my next question. Um, you know, I did, I, I did, one of the things I was interested, because I've spent some time as a volunteer and I don't, you know, so if I spend half a day or a full day, I have some understanding. But for you, going from that transition of being a volunteer to all of a sudden being, this is your life, this is your career. Um, in terms of the way you worked with, interacted with, um, particularly with with the inmates, but also with the staff and with all the, you probably have a whole lot more administrative hoops now to jump through and, and understanding of the uh, of the system, how it works, and how you can be effective. So there was a lot of ignorance on my part when I was a volunteer. Of course, uh, as a volunteer, I have uh, 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 a plethora of empathy for for the inmates. I had less so for the staff. Um, and as a volunteer, you only hear the voice of the inmates. So they're, they're usually telling you how horrible things are and how everyone is treating them badly. And they never really um, account for their contribution to any, anything. So one of the main differences that I've discovered uh, going from a volunteer to inside is that uh, it's a system and everybody's involved and everybody's, everyone is affected. The inmates, are, the inmates affect the staff and the staff affect the inmates, and that all of the stories I hear um, are not always so. 
everyone makes the uh, present the best light for themselves. And if I'm really honest with, with you, there are many of not not all, but many that are incarcerated have um, have learned for their own survival um, have become master at getting what they need, what they want, oftentimes through manipulation. And so that skill is very strong. And so uh, as a that shift. I've noticed many volunteers getting manipulated because because of the rules. You know, sometimes what what we what I'm calling manipulation uh, in the real world might not be considered that, but in in the correctional settings, it's manipulation because there's a lot of restrictions. Volunteers are not allowed to give practically anything to an inmate, and um, inmates, uh, particularly when volunteers come in, they're generally soft-hearted, kind um, folks. And so they make requests of, of volunteers that, that the volunteer may or may not know, but um, out of the kindness of their heart, try to help and to be compassionate to those individuals um, that could cause a problem. So that's one of the biggest distinction that I've noticed, that you have to be aware uh, and know what the boundaries are. Um, I, as a volunteer, uh, um, followed the boundaries, but was pretty critical of it. Um, when you go on the inside and get the view from the inside, you you appreciate better why the boundaries are there. Um, some some are more restricted than others, but um, there's a fairly good rationale why, why most of the, the rules are, are in place. Well, I think this is incredibly valuable information for folks who are bringing, whether they're contracted to come in and do some programming or if they're volunteering to come in. And I think that's that could be a large uh, a large portion of our audience. Um, so if you were to, to come up with sort of a primary quality, like a number one quality that folks who are going to enter into or who are currently working in these sorts of environments, uh, what would be that personal quality that would really help them to be impactful, help them to uh, kind of excel in this work? So it's hard to pin one, but I'll definitely say Self-awareness is pretty pretty big. So to have uh, um, an awareness of yourself about your own trauma, your own baggage, your own luggage, what you're bringing in, your own bias. Even um, I don't think folks are often aware of their own bias, and uh, so there's the implicit, and explicit, explicit, implicit. Rather, it's harder to get in touch with. But as mindfulness practitioners. We're more equipped to get in touch with our implicit bias, those things that are hiding underneath our consciousness, and to have some awareness of what our biases is. Even though you're going to uh, to help, and are you going to help because you're coming as as a savior? You're trying to fix someone. So often volunteers come in to try to fix these broken inmates um, with that mentality. So to to have the self awareness that you're not the fixer and you're not the savior, right? You're coming to do a service. Um, and to serve, uh, that, that is one thing. And, and then also to, uh, to come in with, the, with humility. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, humility, um, particularly cultural humility, that often, you know, oftentimes when you're going there, there's different, there's different uh, cultures involved and, and to not make any assumptions and certainly to, to be mindful that if the culture is different from yours, to try to learn about what's the best way for me to kind of Communicate. Don't be the don't be the teacher that go in and demand that this is how it else it should be. It's my way or the highway. You have to have some sensitivity um, about culture and even more sensitivity about 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 trauma that you're in a trauma space. 
So those are the kind of, those are the two big things that I would say folks need to be aware of. Um, and to and to have the the eyes and the mindset and the awareness that when somebody's not participating in your group the way you'd like or doing it the way you want to, maybe there's something else going on. on uh, there's another undercurrent occurring in terms of their own trauma playing out in, in the space, particularly if you're doing mindfulness. Great, great. And I, and I want to I want to go into mindfulness and trauma and trauma informed approaches, but I just want to note. Uh, what I have found to be, I think, a really important distinction. And when you used the term cultural humility, there is also this term, this kind of idea of cultural intelligence. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, maybe we have some level of cultural intelligence, but that humility aspect of not knowing, of going in and with an understanding that, you know, that's that's not the way I grew up, you know, so... That's the way somebody else grew up. That's where I need to learn, right? That maybe is one of my pitfalls. And this, uh, uh, so I just really appreciate that you made that distinction that we're not talking about. You know, I, I can figure this out by reading a book. You, know, you got to talk to me. You got to be in there and be and be humble and just try and learn. And it's it's lifelong learning, right? Yeah, and to have the conversation that I don't I don't know everything, right? And and to acknowledge the cultural differences. I say, hey. You know, if uh, I'm I'm a I'm a middle-aged white man, I'm saying if if that was someone, you know, I'm speaking to all African Americans or uh, black and brown folks to acknowledge that there, there's some cultural difference. You're here to learn. I'll show you. If I say something that doesn't sound right, that seems insensitive culturally to you, that you know um, that you resist because of the language I'm choosing, bring that to my attention so I can learn. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so so I'm able to um, better. Uh, serve you, and I can grow within myself in terms of how I communicate to this population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Right. Well, let's, great. Thank you for that. So, um, and as a middle aged white man, actually, I'm an older white man, so, but uh, I, I, can, I, I can use, I can hear that over and over, and it's going to help me. Uh, but let's move in, let's move into, because I know you're so passionate and, and so well schooled and learning all the time around trauma. Um, I've worked with you in a person class in South Carolina and, you know, just addressed trauma right away and throughout our, our time together that day, as well as transformation. transformation. Uh, so I want to hear your thoughts around recognizing trauma, acknowledging trauma, being careful with trauma, but also, you know, in some way, I think mindfulness is, is a, bold, courageous way to work with trauma. Yeah, so one of your, uh, this, this connects to one of your earlier questions when you ask uh, what are the one quality, what's the most the best quality for people to have going in? Um, and I mentioned two, um, awareness and humility, and, 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 and this is a very important one uh, as well, is to be trauma-informed, right? to have uh, some sensitivity about uh, trauma to recognize, I tell folks all the time, when you go to, well, well, most groups, most institution you attend, in some level, it's a trauma institution. Everybody has their trauma on the plane, interacting, intersecting with you, so we just don't talk about it. It's more so in the, in the prisons and jails, right, that um, most of the folks that are incarcerated are incarcerated because they had significant trauma history, you know, abusive households, Violence, whether it's verbally or physically or sexually, um, 
community. There's a lot of un, un, uh, instability in the community, instability in, in, in homes. Uh, and that affects a young life as they grow up in terms of how they manage life and how they see things. So they're always, they're always on um, survival mode. Right, so their survival brain is is turned on and it's turned on high. Um, so they're they're hyper vigilant uh, and uh, quick to be, to react because of that. And I'm speaking in generality. And so uh, when volunteers come in, the more trauma informed they are, the more trained they have to deliver mindfulness uh, with trauma sensitivity, or to notice when somebody um, someone's trauma has been triggered. Is, is a tremendous gift that they could give not only to themselves, but to the population that they're serving. Most volunteers don't do that. Most volunteers come in and they're set, and mindfulness is powerful and meditation is beautiful and awesome, but it can also be dangerous, right? If you're not skilled enough, you should be careful of how you deliver mindfulness to a trauma community because. Uh, uh, mindfulness and meditation in, in general, uh, in specific, uh, uh, can trigger people's trauma. Particularly like the body scan, it will trigger people. The, the, the trauma is stored in the body. So when you're doing body scan, people become unrest, uneasy. When you when when you settle the mind, sometimes the trauma emerges like froth. It just rises to the top of the consciousness. At least some of it, uh, and there's a lot of discomfort, and 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 so. Someone might start twitching, start sleeping, start even acting up, become talkative, even disruptive in the in the session, and it might be because they've been triggered. And so you might see that disruption and get irritated with the person, or angry with the person, or even kick them out. And sometimes it's necessary because they're too disruptive. Um, but to have the, the awareness that something has happened um, to that person or to yourself that. Doing mindfulness give you have to give people choice. That's one one of the important things I wanted to say. When you're doing these meditations, um, give people a choice. If they feel triggered, or if they feel unease, uh, give them the option of of grounding themselves and you know, then getting up, walking around, opening their eyes, looking around the room, uh, whatever other grounded techniques you might have, so they can orient themselves and ground themselves in the present moment and not get sucked into the story of their trauma. Uh, you need to be able to recognize that and, and up front kind of set the stage uh, for, for these men and women that you are leading in meditation um, that, that it's not just you waxing eloquent and you know, being this great guide, uh, but you're there to offer choice to the folks that you're guiding. That if they don't sit um, you know, a certain way that you're not are overly rigid about them sitting a certain way or holding their hands a certain way and you know that you give you give permission for them to be comfortable however they are right you're not teaching them how to be expert um, meditate meditators you're just giving them the basic about how they can um, regulate themselves and of course mindfulness and meditation can be a profound gift for for people with trauma because uh, when we when we're able to teach them how to breathe Right, the, the breath work is is profound, helpful to the nervous system to calm it down, and that matters. That you can teach them that, or um, if if someone is um, really wants to, what I call touch touch and touch and release, right? Like touch the the, the sensitive areas in their lives, um, 
through through meditation and let it go when it gets it's going to get too intense come back and ground himself and go back in and back out um and th- those those are helpful uh, skills to help the traumatized befriend their their fears and befriend their nervous system and befriend um, their fear center in the way that they can learn from it uh opposed to be afraid of it. but that takes skill and that takes extra training um that you're able to be able to to hold that space and to also know when you're past your limit you know to go in a for example, to, to particularly women institutions uh, who often uh, have severe trauma, um, to just do whatever you want to without these sensitivities is malpractice, in, in my opinion. You ought to be, you ought to be have some sensitivities to that and know your boundaries, know your limits, know when to not go too far, or know that you can't invite people to take on their their worst traumas. You know, to think about you know you know the worst thing that happened in your life and have them. Uh, and then bring them to a mindfulness session, a, a meditation session with that, and not have them get triggered if you're not skilled um, do that. So, yes, mindfulness is a profound gift. Um, and in the wrong hand, it's a dangerous tool. So we have to be real careful how we do that and, and how we engage um, traumatized population. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. When you were speaking about your understanding of what it's like to live in prison as uh, somebody in custody, you talked about all of the things that you don't choose. You don't choose when you eat. You don't choose. You know, there's a lot of choices taken away. And then you talked about how do we guide or bring mindfulness to people. And then you mentioned bringing choice. So can you just talk a little bit about those parallels, those connections? Yes, thank you. So all of this connects to trauma, right? Because trauma is a, is a disease where, where choice has been taken. Right? People don't feel they have choice and options. So um, when you're sitting with groups like that, you want to introduce choice. You want to let them know they're in control, that they have some control uh, uh, of their lives, of what's going on. And so to remind them of control, to give them these small tastes of choice and control is very nurturing um, to their own nervous system and to their own well-being. Then, yes, I do have... Uh, some control. So what what can often happen to all of us is, you know, our our brains um, have a negativity bias. We 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 notice what's wrong, and so uh, certainly in prison and for the incarcerated and for the for the traumatized, that's all you notice is what's wrong, and so uh, and and to forget you have choice. So even in a horrible situation as as, as prison, uh, with all the constraints, you you have choice there. So to not lose sight that even there. Yeah. The, whatever the, the small pieces of choice, the, the, the morsels of choice that you have, to grab those and to and to nurture them and to you know and to relish them and to celebrate them, um, because it, it really builds your your, your resilience, your well being, uh, calms your 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 amygdala in some way to notice that you know what I'm not stuck. I do have some choices. Some things out of my control. But there's some things I have control over, and there's some some things that so so choice and control is really two very powerful tools and gifts um, to encourage and to share uh, with the incarcerated. Did I answer your question? Yeah, no, that's great, Michael. Thank you, thank you. Um, another thing that you mentioned earlier on <clears throat> was uh, clearly there's there's a there's a power balance that is uh, weighted. You know, on the administrative side, the 
uh, and uh, but you also mentioned to me when we were having a conversation one day, you talked to me. So if we talk about power over and power under, we talk about power imbalances. You mentioned at one point something about knowledge over. And I think that that also ties in with something you said about <clears throat> the potential pitfall coming in as a volunteer or as a programmer that <laughs> you said something about waxing poetic, right? So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What, what, what do you see as, or what, what do you mean knowledge over? And how can that be, uh, how can that be not helpful? And how can we utilize our knowledge, understanding experience as mindfulness practitioners to not get ourselves in an unbalanced situation, but really be able to help with our knowledge? So, so knowledge over connects to uh, self-awareness and to, uh, and to humility. Uh, so yes, it's likely that you have you might have more knowledge than somebody's in. And it's possible that some of those guys or gals that you're going to deal with have more knowledge than you because they've been doing it for a while. Think about Fleet when he was in there. I'm sure his understanding of meditation might have far exceeded some of the folks that were coming in there um, teaching meditation. And so it's, it's important um, to... To not get um, stuck and not get in the ego state where you have the, the, the mentality, the mindset that you're the expert. That's the knowledge over. I'm the expert and I'm going to come and tell you what to do. Um, and it's, it's not an invitation uh, on the other side. It's not acknowledging that the other side um, might have something to bring to the table um, or does have something to bring to the table. And so uh, the knowledge over piece that I'm referring to is, is having ignorance about that, having ignorance that um, you're going in uh, not to be over people, but to walk along with them uh, as, as, a, as a coach, as a facilitator. You're, walk, you're facilitating. Uh, you're not, you're not, and to be open to the possibility that uh, they might be very equipped. And if they're not, then it's, it's our job to facilitate the process, to meet them where they are. You know, to not shut someone down, like, well, hey, listen, I'm the teacher, you know, um, and do as I say uh, type of mentality. So, of course, there'll be situations where you have to be firm and put boundaries down because of what's happening in the class, what's happening in a session in terms of someone um, really disrupting the entire class. Uh, and that's different than just having the attitude that uh, I'm the expert, I'm the one that knows everything, just do as I say. Uh, and uh, and don't ask me any questions. Just you know, just believe what I'm telling you. So so that's what I that's what I was referring to about knowledge. A good example of this is um, uh, the first question you asked me. I mentioned to you that when I first came there, I have a doctorate degree, so I came in um, with a chip on my shoulder that uh, I had the knowledge. I'm trained, uh, and I was going to teach these guys. And not only you know trained in a lot of different modalities, but I was going to come in and teach these guys. And quickly, uh, I learned that um, I was also a student, right? And so my attitude, my knowledge over attitude really shifted um, that I could like, wow, I, can, I, I am learning a lot from these guys uh, if I'm aware. And, and it might not be, uh, might not have been academic learning that I was getting from them. They might not have been giving me you know, theories and um, doctrines and all these other kind of stuff. Um, but I was learning, uh, I was learning about how life is for others. I was learning about how to navigate space. I was learning to listen deeper. I was learning to have 
um, how to have more compassion with folks that have grew up differently from me, live differently from me, lack less, have less education than I do. Then how do I how, how do I operate in that space with compassion and care um, uh, for them, and and not from my ego state, say that I'm the boss and uh, I know it, I know everything. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, and I, uh, I really like that you highlighted the facilitative approach, the, the coach or guide approach that you mentioned. So maybe we'll shift gears a little bit and ask you about uh, your work as a chaplain, as a faith-based chaplain. And if you can speak with us uh, about that and about how you are blending that or not with your mindfulness and meditation, and how does that come together? Yeah, so my journey with meditation has been a, a long time. And when I first got exposed to meditation, I was very resistant to it because my faith tradition, uh, my faith understanding said that mindfulness was not Christian. It was Buddhist. It was everything other than Christian. And so I, I didn't, but um, I struggled because uh, the, the scriptures, uh, the Holy Scriptures, um, has plenty of uh, hundreds, probably even, of references to meditation. And so I had to try to make sense of that. And what helped me was, was going to prison, going mean, um, working in the prison. And I was um, having faith classes and, and teaching in the prison um, about faith and spirituality and all of that. And, but I also noticed the trauma of these men. And that if, you, if, you're, if your mind is dysregulated, if you're at ease, uh, this stuff is, is transactional. It comes and it goes because there's nowhere for it to really sit and, 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 and find roots per se. I'm speaking again in generality because some folks, you, you talk to them, you, you, you preach and teach and, and, you know, could be one session and, and they're, they're really transformed. But for the majority of folks, it doesn't happen because they're too dysregulated. To, to, so when you can teach them to regulate their nervous system, like calm, and then, and I teach the, the, uh, the men there, this is a great way for you to, um, before you head to prayer, calm yourself down, right? Not empty your mind or clear your mind, but just calm your system down. So you're not thinking of a thousand things. And so you can pray the way you want to uh, without the mind being distracted, right? without having the monkey mind. Um, and the same in their studies, if they're going to study the, the Holy Scriptures, with whichever faith you have, whatever your faith is, that you have um, a clear mind. And so I began to incorporate doing that. In, in my sessions with these men and saw just a tremendous difference in terms of how they were receiving their own ability to kind of be stale and to take in what was happening. And so then I created a curriculum and started to teach at some churches uh, to break the myth that uh, meditation was a, um, um, a Buddhist or some other thing other than uh, Christianity. And, in, in that, in that, in my research, discovered that you know pretty much lots of the uh, um, all three have meditation in it. The early Christians meditated. The monks were were great medit big meditators. Um, uh, many of the uh, early uh, Hebrew 
um, teachers were, were big meditators. As a matter of fact, er, early in the Hebrew um, journey, it was thought to believe that meditation was the only way you can get to know God. Um, so to be still, the scripture that says, be still and know uh, that I am God. So that intersection was powerful. So when I realized that there were a lot of people like myself um, several years ago that re were resisting um, that, that intersection to be still and learn. They think they have to sit cross-legged and sit a certain way and go um And there's all this misunderstanding and myth about uh, what meditation is. Um, fortunately for um, John Kabat-Zinn and all of the research that came after him with no mindfulness and how to, that's affected us, uh, not only our minds, but our body in terms of helping with pain and helping people recover uh, quickly. That's helped. So folks see this now as a tool. And then, so I bring that understanding and I also bring the understanding that it's been a part of uh, practically every faith tradition and certainly for Christians, it's been a part of our tradition. But how do we meditate? How do we meditate? Because most of us, when we hear the word meditation, we think of study, just like study a particular scripture more deeply or to sit with something more deeply. And that is a form. Um, but so I teach, I, I kind of give uh, the basic of how to sit still, how to regulate. And I'm convinced that when you do this, when you have a meditation practice, you are more inclined to have the mind of Christ. You're more inclined to have compassion. When I say the mind of Christ, I really mean compassion and empathy for yourself and for others, right? Because it does that. It cultivates that, that, that compassion and empathy in someone that you uh, you can be the best you in, what, in your faith. So if you're a Christian, you can be the best Christian because you're cultivating compassion for yourself and for others. And you do that by, being, by sitting still. And I'm convinced that uh, if there's a hearing from God, we hear from God better when we learn to settle the noise in our heads so uh, we can be better guided and directed. And the, some folks call it the true self, that, and these Christians call it the spirit of God in us, spirit of God in you. You, you can hear that voice, that voice that speaks to you to say left, right, yes, no. You know, as a guy, um, you're better able to, to, to hear that voice with clarity and with certainty. Uh, if you're cultivating a, uh, a meditation practice. And so in your bio, it, it said that you've developed a, a curriculum. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, so pretty much um, some of what I've just shared is a part of the curriculum. I kind of go through the history of what, what, what happened, um, the disconnection between meditation and the Western world. Um, how it was, how and why it was kind of thrown out. There's, there's a particular time in history when there was a big resistance. I talked about the connection of um, other traditions that have meditation as a very big part of it, including Christianity. Uh, we go through the scriptures, uh, looking at meditation, looking at different texts that speaks of meditation, and looking at the the, the Hebrew language. Um, so not just what the English language says, what's the Hebrew uh, what, what are Hebrew or Greek words um, or Aramaic words that speak to that particular word that has been translated meditation in English? And I talk about the different ways you could meditate and how you can incorporate this uh, in, your, in your life as, as a Christian in terms of study, worship, church, prayer, especially prayer, uh, and how um, it will transform your life. So 
that is that is a a general um, overview of of what we what we go through with lots of spaces where we're practicing. Um, I'm teaching and we're we're doing practice um, practicing what we what we have just learned. So yeah, yeah, great. Well, when you were speaking a few minutes ago, you brought up the name of John Kabat-Zinn and the fact that there has been a phenomenal amount of research. Sociological research, but also uh, neuroscientific research, and I know that you are pretty well steeped and uh, have some foundational understanding in in the neuroscience. And um, would you like to talk a little bit about <clears throat> how that works in in any of your how that is informing and helping you with your teaching and guidance? Yeah, so um, I am a neuroscience geek. I'm not sure how I got there. Um, but it's uh, for those of us that are in a mindfulness space and meditation space, a neuroscience is very important um, because we're trying to understand the mind. And um, again, for the traumatized community, that's also a very uh, a big thing because when you understand why the mind does what it does and what affects it, and the different parts of the of the brain um, that comprises um, our thinking and our feeling and, and our, you know, knowing about our amygdala and our fear centers and how that's triggered, understanding that um, uh, we can become easily triggered because we're hypersensitive, because our survival brain is, is, is hyper alert because of the years of, of, of trauma. Uh, those things really matter and influence uh, how you offer trauma-informed care um, to folks, um, but it also helps you in terms of um, one of the beautiful things, the gift that neuroscience has given me, it's just helped me how to be with myself and to have compassion on myself because I understand and I know that there's certain things that I do or think or say that is, is not coming from my true self or not coming from my wisdom brain or my, the brain that desires to, to be flexible and, and loving and care. There's a part of my brain that's designed to protect me, and it, it, it cares about nothing else but to look for threats. And um, if it deems something as a threat, whether it's a threat or not, it's going to release hormones in my body. It's going to affect me. It's going to make me start thinking. It's going to recruit, recruit thoughts to my mind. Knowing that, um, I can say, oh, you know, here goes my, you know, my survival brain taking over. And I can compartmentalize that in a way that I can, it shows give myself some compassion and some grace. Uh, I'm not always successful at that. <laughs> Sometimes it takes over and I'm a, I'm a beast. Um, but having that understanding, um, so it's it not just, it does, doesn't help you, it helps, it informs how you teach, informs how you facilitate, informs how you present um, mindfulness to others because um, you it's, it's, it's imperative that there is some some understanding of this um, when you're when you're going out to the world offering mindfulness um, to others that they're 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 knowing this particularly if it's uh, a group that has been um, trauma affected. Okay. So, having said all of that, Michael, would you be willing to guide us, guide our audience in a say a three to five minute practice, the way you might do so for a group you would. You'd be working with in prison? Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. So just invitation to take some breaths. 
two deep breaths into the nose, out to the mouth. It's your choice to have your eyes open or closed. Most people like to close your eyes because it makes them relax, but if that doesn't make you relax, then you don't have to. Just really feel your body sitting in a chair. Just sense the chair. Sense your body sitting in the chair. Feel the weight of the body in the chair. Feel the chair supporting you, holding you up. Sense your, your feet. Call this from your seat to your feet. Just notice in the contact between your feet and the floor. And at any time, if any point in this meditation, if you feel uncomfortable or easy or becoming overwhelmed, if you feel like you're getting triggered, just open your eyes. Just come back to the space. If you're if you need, you look around the room or walk around the room. Have complete control by how you enter this. So feel any sensation on the bottom of your foot, warm, tingling, anything. Just notice in the feet. Just feeling how the floor supports you. One of my favorite meditations to do. I invite folks to, if they're willing, they're willing, you can stay at the feet and the floor, or you can expand from the feet and the floor and just feel, imagine the building holding up the floor, holding up the feet. Just sense that if you can in your imagination. If it's too much, then just stay with the connection of the feet and the floor. Your choice again to expand your awareness. The sense the earth holding up the building. If you have choice to go there or to stay with the feet connected to the floor. Imagine what it would be the earth supporting the building, supporting the floor, supporting the Supporting your chair or your bed or whatever you're resting on, standing. Let's take a deep breath into the nose, out to the mouth, and suck in your strength from the earth. Feel the support. Just rest your awareness on your breath. Without doing anything, the rise and fall of your breathing. The breath is too much for you. Just keep it on your feet.
or find a body part that feels light and comfortable to focus on. Focus on that. I'll end this by just inviting you in your choice. Just think of one thing you're grateful for. And really sit with it for three breaths and third breath you can open your eyes and return back to space. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. That was great. And a wonderful model and guide. Well, it's been uh, it's been wonderful having you. Again, thank you for all of your time and and your caring. Uh, if people are interested in finding out more about your work, about you, how might they do that? Yes, they can email me at um, Christie, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E, 7777 at Gmail. I'm also LinkedIn, but I'm not sure what my LinkedIn address is. It's Dr. Michael Christie. Those would be the spot. They can reach out to me. My email address, Christy four sevens at gmail.com. Again, thank you so much, Reverend Dr. Michael Christie, for being with us here. Such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Take good care. Likewise. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.